Welcome back. I'm Peter St. Ange. This is a weekly roundup of my daily videos on the economy and freedom, where I try to cut through the BS and the smoke and mirrors and lay out exactly what the clowns are trying to do to you and what is coming next. Last week, the Bank of Japan shocked markets by announcing big changes to its decade-long flood of cheap money. Will Japan now join China in pulling trillions out of the U.S., taking out the cheap money propping up our ruling clowns. So what happened? The Bank of Japan announced they're winding down their decade-long yield curve control, a system of manipulating interest rates so money is cheap to borrow without hurting pensions and banks. That policy has already driven trillions offshore seeking higher returns, especially to U.S. and European stock markets and bond markets, but above all to U.S. treasuries. And now those trillions could be going back to Japan. So what is yield curve control? Bond yields are the interest rate you get for holding a bond. A 2% rate means you get $2 per year on a $100 bond. I mentioned the yield curve in a recent video, but it measures the interest rates for different lengths. So one year, five year, 10 year. What Japan wanted was essentially zero rates on the one years and five years to artificially stimulate its economy with only slightly higher rates on the 10 years since Japanese pensions would go bankrupt if their long bonds were earning negative negative rates. To keep rates low, the Bank of Japan promised to buy as many 10 years as it takes. Remember, by buying bonds, it raises the price, which means a lower rate of return. To illustrate, if a $100 bond is paying 2%, so $2 in interest, and the price goes to $200, now that is a 1% bond. Fantastic, of course, if you're a banker who owned the original $100 bonds, which are now worth $200. The problem is this meant massive injections of fresh money into the economy. To the point, the Bank of Japan now owns a majority of Japanese government debt, over $4 trillion. In fact, the Bank of Japan is now the largest owner of stocks in Japan, owning 80% of new exchange-traded funds, ETFs, and owning over 7% of all the publicly held corporations on the Tokyo Stock Exchange. This is not sustainable. At some point, the Bank of Japan owns everything in Japan, even the Soviet Union did not own literally everything, so the bank knew it could not go on forever. In fact, they had already pulled back a couple times, bumping the 10-year ceiling in 2018 and then 2021, but now they ripped off the Band-Aid, saying they'll abandon targets altogether. They did promise flexibility to try and call markets, but the move still sent Japanese stocks and the yen in gyrations. For Americans, the main impact is that Japan's low rates have so far sent about $3 trillion offshore, overwhelmingly to the U.S. and Europe, chasing higher returns. If zero policy is now history, that money will start to go home, meaning they will sell U.S. treasuries, U.S. stocks, European bonds and equities, everything from Brazilian sovereign debt to European power stations to high-risk loans. This could further drive down especially the U.S. dollar, which has already fallen almost 15% since September. Now that Chinese are pulling money home to shore up their slowing economy, if Japanese money too is going home, that takes out $2 trillion stacks that have been floating the U.S. and European economies and the currencies. The free pass may be coming to an end. The other day, analyst Jim Bianco put out a tweet how all three 
major financial papers put out essentially the same story, predicting a soft landing for the U.S. economy where inflation comes down on its own and the Fed hikes don't crash the economy. As if the mothership itself broadcast the bat signal and the papers all fell in line. Jim worried that this apparent consensus could mean the soft landing scenario is priced into markets. In other words, that stocks are at a level that only makes sense if we either skip the recession or if it is super light, as opposed to the hard landing recession or the outcome Jim thinks is most likely the no landing scenario where inflation reaccelerates and the Fed just keeps going with hikes until it eventually kills the economy. Now, in recent videos, I've argued that we are guaranteed to get a slowdown from the rate hikes, but that lag is typically around 18 months. Interest rates did not even normalize to pre-pandemic levels until roughly a year ago. While rates haven't actually gotten restrictive, say the levels preceding the 2008 crisis crisis or the dot-com crash until literally last week. So going by history, it is way too early for skipping anything. We've still got somewhere between 8 and 18 months until we know what the hikes have done. Meanwhile, as I've mentioned in recent videos, lockdown leftovers are clouding the weakness as excess savings and supply chain overhangs in cars and housing cancel out the standard recessionary slowdown. Meanwhile, companies are still hoarding employees stuck in PTSD after the 2021 labor shortages. To give a flavor, the journal profile filed a vending machine company that fired half its staff during the lockdowns, but is now rehiring half the layoffs. So that's 50% growth in headcount, but it's a one-time thing. It's not like we're undergoing 50% GDP growth. So if rates are not hitting for another 8 to 18 months, while lockdown rebounds are clouding the data, forget the mission accomplished banner, we haven't even seen Act 1 which, by the way, is why I've characterized buying stocks in this market as grabbing dimes in front of a steamroller. So what is next? The key numbers to watch are going to be sales by sector, layoffs by sector, and core inflation. Specifically, whether those lockdown one-timers are holding up or whether the savings are running down, the cars and houses are normalizing, and whether labor hoarding continues, meaning reducing hours while holding on to the body count. We are getting canaries in some of those coal mines. That same optimistic journal article also noted that over half of small companies are delaying or reducing capital expenditures. That's a standard recession preparation. And almost half are delaying hiring. So companies are getting ready for a storm, even if the mothership is not. The big unknown at this point is core inflation. If it keeps coming down, then the Fed is done hiking and we're on that 8 to 18 month clock. On the other hand, if core inflation reaccelerates that no landing scenario, the Fed keeps hiking and we get a ratchet up in the eventual crash. Either way, it is very early for the celebratory bat signals. Last week, Bloomberg put out an article about millions of Americans trapped in their homes because mortgage rates and house prices have gone up so much that they can't afford to move. The problem is you'd be trading a three and a quarter percent mortgage for seven and a quarter, which on the median house would mean going from a $1,600 mortgage to a $2,600 mortgage. There are not that many Americans with a spare thousand lying around every month on top of yet more thousands in buyer costs and the move itself. What 
set it off, of course, was the Fed pushing interest rates to zero during COVID lockdowns to artificially stimulate the economy, at which point Americans refinanced their mortgages in droves, to the point that almost two-thirds of Americans now have a mortgage below 4%, while current rates are 7.3% and rising. Meanwhile, of course, house prices also soared during COVID, thanks also to that same zero-rate policy. So the median house now costs 416000 up from just over 300000 pre-pandemic. The result is, as Bloomberg puts it, gridlock, as empty nesters put off their retirement dreams and young families postpone buying a house with room for the kids. Bloomberg profiled one single mother stuck in a fixer-upper she can't afford to unload and notes that first-time homebuyers now need to make almost 65000 a year no mean feat when you're in your 20s, to qualify on the average entry-level home. That's up from 57000 a year ago. As one Redfin economist put it, quote, the most affordable homes for sale are no longer affordable due to the combination of rising prices and rising rates. As a result, the number of homes for sale now is currently just half what it was pre-pandemic, and existing home sales are down a third. Yes, people are making do with crappy houses. All this despite there being 4 million more people in the country than pre-pandemic. That's the official numbers. Leaving home builders to make up the difference, which they are trying to do, furiously building to both make up for pent-up delays during the supply chain crisis and now for the fact that existing homes don't want to sell. Now, I mentioned in recent videos how that home building strength is one of the major factors hiding the recession, and it's worth noting that when that smoke clears, when rates come down and existing homes go back for sale, all of that furious oversupply could crash prices, especially in places that are losing people or that lack long-term demand, generally because they're run by clowns. So what is next? The logjam won't break until rates come down, which won't happen until inflation is dead, which even the Fed says may not happen for years to come. Indeed, if inflation holds up, oil prices are suggesting it could, the Fed could even get back to hiking, which makes the gridlock even worse. The Fed's historic interest rate manipulations these past couple years, plus federal trillions pumped out to buy lockdowns, have screwed up just about every industry in America, each pendulum swing a wrecking ball whipsawing millions of Americans. Each time we hope it's done, they throw a new curveball. Two days ago, credit rating agency Fitch downgraded the federal debt. Are we moving from the gradually stage to the suddenly stage? Fitch is one of the big three credit rating outfits together with Moody's and S&P, and they dropped the federal government from their highest rating, AAA, to their second highest, AA+. Adding they see a, quote, steady deterioration that could suggest more cuts to come if nothing improves. Now, given the federal deficit is up 170% on last year alone, in all likelihood, nothing will improve. The proximate cause of the downgrade, of course, was rising federal debt. Fitch estimates it will hit 118% of GDP by 2025, which is more than two and a half times the AAA country median of 39%. So it was already a friend rating. Fitch cited the repeated last minute debt ceiling standoffs amid 20 years of deterioration in quote fiscal and debt matters. Biden's staff added that January 6th was a factor, which Fitch didn't mention in their report, but extra points for creativity. Note, this kind of downgrade did happen once before, 
in the 2011 debt ceiling clash, that time by S&P. Because our nation is governed by laws, two weeks later, the federal government opened an investigation whether S&P caused the 2008 mortgage crisis, at which point S&P fired its CEO. So that was just 18 days from downgrade to unemployment. Even NBC, which wasn't quite as bootlicky back then, connected the dots and questioned the timing. So we will see if any Fitch executives get that pink slip. But so far, the administration has, of course, strongly disagreed with the downgrade, with Janet Yellen saying Fitch used, quote, outdated numbers, to which Zero Hedge responded, yes, they are outdated. Debt payments have actually doubled to roughly $1 trillion. And the CBO, Congressional Budget Office, is now projecting a $50 trillion national debt. So what is the impact of the downgrade? In theory, higher interest rates on government debt, meaning a rise in that $1 trillion we already spend on debt service, itself on track to $1.6 trillion this year. If federal debt is now risky, that makes investors nervous, so they require higher rates, which could push us towards $2 trillion in debt service. By the way, the entire federal government only collects about twice that, $4.8 trillion, meaning almost half of every tax dollar could soon go to servicing, not paying off mine, just servicing old debt. Still, it is worth noting that last time in 2011, the opposite happened. Stocks fell, but treasuries in the dollar actually rose in a flight to safety typical of any crisis. So near term, that could happen again, even if longer term is a weaker dollar and higher debt interest. The fundamental issue here is that the US government is spending like a drunk sailor with a stolen credit card. They're also drinking like drunk sailors. And even intimidation of credit rating agencies is not hiding the fact. I would not hold my breath for anything to change. The feds will just pay any higher interest with yet more debt. As always, accelerating the crash instead of fixing it, kicking that can over and over until you kick it and it doesn't budge. A few days ago, just before Fitch downgraded our spender-in-chief, the Treasury Department announced it plans to borrow what the Wall Street Journal termed an eye-popping amount, a trillion dollars over the next three months alone, and a projected $1.85 trillion over the next six months. Both were 40 to 50% higher than Treasury's last estimate just two months ago. Note that was before the debt ceiling surrender, so Treasury may have been lightly cooking those books. UK bank Barclays termed the $1.85 trillion a, quote, Treasury tsunami. Meanwhile, new figures show federal spending jumped 18% in June on the year ago to $646 billion on the month. That's an annualized $8 trillion, which is almost double what the feds collect. Meanwhile, tax receipts also slumped 9% to just $418 billion. That comes to a $228 billion hole on the month alone, which is roughly $7 billion of fresh debt per day. Put them together and the budget deficit, which is already up 170% on last year, is set to soar. The problem is who would buy all that eye-popping debt? I've mentioned recently how Japan's monetary policy and China's slowing economy could turn two of the main buyers of U.S. debt into sellers. Together, today, they hold roughly $2 trillion. Meanwhile, the Fed is rolling off its $5 trillion stack of treasuries, rolling off meaning letting them expire and not buying new ones to the tune of 30 billion per month expected to double 
to $60 billion per month in September. So if the three main buyers of federal debt are now sellers, who's going to buy that $1.85 trillion? Keep in mind, China is also busy bribing countries out of the U.S. dollar, both as part of the BRICS project and with its development banks that lure countries off the greenback. The last man standing is private buyers, which drains money that in theory was supposed to finance the real economy, so businesses, households, homeowners. So what happens next? The Journal quotes one expert worried about what we saw in the UK last year when fears over government debt sent bond yields skyrocketing 140% in two months that crashed UK bond prices, which put banks and even major pension funds at risk of bankruptcy. Meanwhile, the British pound plunged, losing 24% of its value against the dollar in just a couple months and almost hitting dollar parity. That's what you would expect from a third world country, not the United Kingdom. The British government, of course, panicked, ditching a planned tax cut to revive the economy, essentially waving the white flag that perhaps the UK can never again cut taxes now that it has become a slave to its national debt. Keep in mind, the US is in much worse shape than the UK. The UK's national debt just passed 100% of GDP, while the US is bumbling along at 137% and apparently rising fast. So at best, our coming federal debt tsunami would drive up debt interest payments, which are already a trillion a year, and on track to $1.6 trillion even before the latest surprises. At worst, we get a UK-style panic with soaring yields and crashing bonds that put yet more banks and even pension funds on the chopping block. The trillion-dollar bailouts we've already seen could expand exponentially, pulling us towards that great everything bailout. Is Joe Biden's manufacturing boom just more BS? The other day, the current president bragged on Twitter, or bragged on X, about the epic manufacturing boom driven by his administration's, quote, historic investments meaning historic taxpayer handouts to, above all, climate companies. Bloomberg subsequently ran an article on the apparent puzzle that new factories are coming online at a furious pace, even as manufacturing has declined for nine months running. So what gives? Is manufacturing back thanks to Biden, or is it standard Biden BS? I've got a full article on the newsletter, but the key is that, like all government handouts, the dollars are big, but they're not investment, they are waste. Most of the new factories are taxpayer-subsidized, especially in green energy, including many owned by foreign companies from, above all, China. In short, as Zero Hedge puts it, Biden is using billions in taxes to falsify economic numbers to get reelected. In truth, the manufacturing PMI, which measures the broad health of American manufacturing, has been dropping since March of 2021. That's two and a half years. In fact, it's at the lowest level since just before the 2008 crisis. In the abstract, factories themselves are neither good nor bad. The question is, why did you build the factory? After all, the Soviet Union had tons of factories. They essentially redirected all of society's resources to building more factories at the expense of, say, bread and meat. One furniture factory famously put out product that was so flimsy that it was literally worth less than the wood it took to make it. They'd have done better closing the factory selling the logs to Germany, and using the log money to import chairs you can actually sit on. So while a private sector factory is indeed a wonderful thing, government 
factories aren't measuring prosperity to come. They are measuring taxpayer fleecings to come. A poster child is semiconductors. Last August, the CHIPS Act, which was bipartisan, so thanks Republicans, handed $50 billion to crony semiconductor makers, sending chip factory construction from $6 billion in 2021 to $16 billion in the latest numbers. Of course, the semiconductor industry is famously cyclical, and factories do take time to build. So when the money was handed out, We were in the mother of all supply chain strangles, but already chips are in oversupply and prices are falling. Meaning by the time the money is fully spent, there is a very good chance that like the Soviet chair factory, it will pay better to shut down. Climate is likely to deliver this on steroids with Biden handing a trillion to the Greens alone. What manufacturing actually needs is not handouts, but across-the-board deregulation, especially repealing climate, labor, and diversity mandates. It would also help to get relief from jackpot lawsuits and tax cuts, yes, even for the little guy. Alas, this all helps flyover country, but it hardly brings in the political donations. Governments worldwide cannot resist handing money to their friends. In China, they pour trillions into empty apartment buildings with politically connected owners. In the U.S., we pour it into empty factories with politically connected owners. The result is a Potemkin economy propped up by endless stimulus, handouts, and historic investments that burn up resources, workers, and money the real economy could have used. Get the rest with charts and more at petersanange.com. Ford Motor Company is set to lose $4.5 billion on electric vehicles this year as the American car industry braces for a, quote, invasion by cheap Chinese EVs. Ford's recent earnings showed its electric vehicle division lost $2.1 billion last year and is on track to double that this year. In fact, it's already lost $1.8 billion just six months in. Why are they losing so much? Because EV components are much more expensive than they'd expected. Well, it turns out consumers don't want nearly as many $60,000 EVs as they thought. Ford even had to cut the price on its flagship electric F-150, which it turns out you have to charge for 30 minutes every 100 miles with a small trailer. So 30 minutes every hour and a half, which makes for a really boring road trip or say workday. The rest of Ford, of course, did just fine, coming off pent-up lockdown demand. Remember when you couldn't get a car two years ago? In other words, the other 91% of Ford customers are now paying more so that Ford can lose money on EVs. Meanwhile, Reuters reports that dozens of cheap Chinese EV makers are poised for an invasion of Western markets, which the CEO of Chrysler owner Stellantis characterized as, quote, extremely brutal. He estimated the Chinese have a 25% cost advantage against Western car companies, which has already won them a 9% share of Europe's EV markets, on track to double in the next two years. It's a lot lower in the U.S. since Trump's tariffs have held Chinese EVs at bay, but then Axios reports Chinese car makers are now hiring lobbyists in Washington, so that could well change in this democracy of ours. To get a scale of the threat, the average EV in the U.S. currently costs around $55,000, but one major Chinese car maker, BYD, just announced a $10,000 EV, the Seagull, which kind of looks like a Ford Fiesta, and it undercuts the previous champ, the Great Wall's Aura Funky Cat. 
Both will definitely come up in price as they make them compliant for the U.S. market, but there's no way domestics can compete at $55,000. And remember, Ford is already losing billions on EVs at those prices. If the prices come down, the losses will soar. For decades now, policymakers have fiddled while our manufacturing drains away, even as China builds up quality and cost advantages. Rather than proactively getting out of the way of American manufacturing, they keep throwing curveballs like EV mandates that are much easier for the Chinese or Elon Musk to handle than our lumbering legacy behemoths. On present trends, there is a very good chance that America's big three car makers could be dethroned, perhaps fade to even relevancy done in by these same trillion dollar green subsidies handing industry after industry to China. Thanks for listening. Remember to subscribe to get next week's episode right in your inbox and visit petersanange.com for all the videos, archives, and fresh articles about economics and freedom. Okay, we'll be watching. See you next time.